G'day, and welcome back to the Australian Histories podcast. This Kali saga has been unfolding slowly for a few months now, and we are reaching the last few episodes. It will soon be time to talk about the gang's last stand and the famous armour before trying to weigh up how you feel about the Kali story now. But in this episode, we'll look first at their exploits in Gerildery and consider how the resulting actions may have shaped the gang's final plans. The meaty bit is on its way, and I'm excited about getting to that, so thanks for sticking with me this far. I'm just recording here a little bit of extra dialogue. Listening to my recording from yesterday, I noticed that my speech is a bit odd, and I do apologise for that. I've had one of those weird things happen. I have... um. <laughs> I've bitten my tongue and I'm having quite a bit of trouble talking clearly with this little injury. I've left the recording as late as I can, but um, yes, I apologise for the slightly odd sounding recording this week. I'm sure I'll be fine for the next recording. The other thing I wanted to add in was that while I was preparing for this episode, the 114th anniversary of the deaths at Stringybark Creek occurred, so I did just want to mark that somehow. If you are just discovering the Australian Histories podcast at this episode, and you're interested in the full Kelly story, you may benefit from starting at episode 2 or 3 to hear the whole story before listening to this one. If you're up to speed with the saga, let's move on now to episode 14, Gerildery. So we'll jump straight into this episode, leading on from the last. After the Euroa robbery in December, there was a flurry of police activity in the area and surveillance of the women at the Kelly homestead continued. The police tried baiting the dogs so that they could approach the house without raising any alarm, but Maggie took to muzzling them and their life continued there much as it had since the boys were first on the run. Fortunately for the Callies, though, there was a lull in police actions over the Christmas period and it allowed the boys to visit the family home and lay new bark on the roof and then celebrate Christmas Day with the girls. James Kelly was due to return from jail in January too, so at least they would have some male family at the homestead in the new year. But January 1879 also saw a more concerted effort by the police in detaining anyone with suspected sympathies for the gang. The neighbours spent the next few months being hauled in and out of the police cells at a time when their crops should have been harvested and preparations should be made for the coming year. With the police continuing to remand the Kelly sympathisers for weeks on end, it was becoming obvious to many that this illegal imprisonment was counterproductive. With the more focused public scrutiny since the Euroa hold-up, and the published snippets from the Cameron letter, the suggestion of an unjust legal system being used to persecute the Kellys was becoming obvious as it played out in these regional courts. At one hearing, Wild Wright took the opportunity in court to remind the powers that, quote, you will not get the Kellys until Parliament meets and Mrs Kelly is released and Fitzpatrick put in her place, unquote thus putting the whole focus of the problem back in Greta, where it had all started. 
Kate Kelly was seen outside the lawyer's offices, probably paying fees with the Euroa hold-up cash for the sympathiser's defence. They were finally released without charge on April 22nd, but no amends were made for their treatment. Two weeks after their release, Standish was to comment, quote, The gang were secure of the goodwill of a great proportion of the inhabitants of these regions, a poor but semi-criminal class, whom they never annoy and frequently assist, and who supply them with food and information of the movements of police. Indeed, the outlaws are considered heroes by a large proportion of the population in the northeast district, who look upon the police as their natural enemies, unquote. The indiscriminate jailing had just further hardened the resolve of those sympathisers, as had the flow of the National Bank cash. If you recall from the last episode, having pretty much used up all that cash from the Euroa robbery, the last of it probably going into the pockets of the local lawyers, the gang decided that another hold-up was in order. They had sent Aaron off to the police to spread the rumour that the gang was planning a hold-up in Goulburn, New South Wales. The rumoured plans contained enough truth that the police would find it viable and would suggest that Aaron was genuine in helping them by passing on the information. But the hinted robbery target was far enough away to completely divert attention from their actual chosen target. Hare, however, was convinced that Aaron was genuine in passing on the information, and so he sent troopers to the most likely Murray River crossing places around Corriong, where the gang would be likely to cross if they were heading for Goulburn. While the police were getting themselves to the Corriong area, the Kellys actually made for a crossing between Mulwala and Tokemore, about 160 miles to the west, and they made their way to their chosen town of Gerildery in southern New South Wales. Gerildery was a modest town, serving the sheep and wool industry in 1879. Apart from being famous as the Kelly hold-up target, Gerildery is also notable for being the childhood home of Sir John Monash. Monash, of course, the namesake of Monash University in Melbourne, was a well-regarded civil engineer and a celebrated military commander during the First World War. Currently, you can see his head adorning the $100 note, should you be lucky enough to have one. Now, you already know just how self-confident the gang were and their preferred modus operandi, so it's no surprise to hear that their gerildery plans included once again taking their time over a couple of days, rounding up and imprisoning anyone they came across in town that they thought might be a problem for them. Friday, February 7th, the gang left Greta heading northwest across the border. By the Saturday afternoon, they were in New South Wales within a few miles of the town, and they stopped at Davidson's Woolpack Inn on the outskirts of Gerildery. Dan and Joe headed in first for a few drinks and chatted to the barmaid there about the latest news on the Kellys. Not an unusual thing to do, given that they were still the exciting topic for most of the country. Asking her opinion on the Kelly gang, she insisted the Kellys wouldn't hurt any ordinary folk, so they found the local attitudes there reassuring. Ned and Steve went in separately and ordered a meal, and they made themselves comfortable for a spell. They chatted a little about the township and gathered a bit of information about the police and other persons of note in town from the locals in the pub. 
Later in the evening, after their reviving break, the gang made their way to the Gerildery Police Station, which was at that time staffed by Senior Constable George Devine and Probationary Constable Henry Richards. Three of the gang tied up their horses nearby and waited out of sight. Ned then rode noisily up to the police station and called out, Mr Devine, there's a row at Davidson's hotel. Come quick or there'll be murder there. Both police officers responded, dressing themselves in haste as they came stumbling out to see what was going on. Kelly said, Aren't there more than two of you to come and stop the row? The men are mad with drink. Devine answered there were only two of them. And suddenly Kelly calmed. Drawing his revolver, he said, Move and I'll shoot you. I'm Kelly. Put up your hands. The waiting gang members then appeared, bailed them up and herded them back inside, gathering up the police weapons and ammunition on the way. The surprised Mrs Devine was assured by Ned that no harm would come to any of them, unless he saw signs of, quote, hanky-panky work. What's the origin of that phrase, I wonder? Ned is probably meaning funny business or mischief or misbehaviour, though in checking the modern online dictionaries, I'm being told hanky-panky generally refers to more risque activities, so I think we'd better leave that little diversion alone then. Ned also added, so that the officers would hear, as long as they remain quiet, you and the children will be safe. I imagine by now the news of the hostages held at Young Husbands, Faithful's Creek Euroa, was well known to them all, so they could probably feel pretty sure that if they did not cross Kelly, he was likely to treat them well. The officers were relieved of their uniforms and were then led out to the lock-up to join the local drunk already in the police cells for the night. But poor old Devine was beside himself with worry and he couldn't resist pleading with Ned not to interfere with his wife. Ned was genuinely offended by this slur on his character, protesting that he and his mates always treated women with the greatest respect and courtesy. And he noted this was more than could be said about many of the Victorian police. No doubt making reference there to the salacious behaviour towards his own sisters, Annie and Kate, Ned assured Divine that his wife and children would have every respect shown to them by the Kellys. They fed their horses, and they asked Mrs. Devine to make them some supper. During this time, Ned helped her with the various household chores, including carrying out the child's bath and emptying the water for her, and assisted in other ways. He was always one for taking care of his own mother, and helping the women with their chores seemed a natural task for him, so he does get 19th century brownie points for that. Mrs. Devine later commented that he was, quote, the kindest man I ever met, unquote. The gang took turns on guard, and with the police officers securely locked up and motivated to be quiet, they spent the remainder of the evening resting peacefully at the police station. They would spend Sunday occupying the town, wandering about and familiarising themselves with the layout, before preparing the final details for the planned bank robbery on Monday. So they donned the police uniforms and took the glum Richards along to introduce them as new constables, should anyone ask, and they began exploring. It was usual for Mrs Devine to decorate the courthouse on a Sunday morning, as they used the building for the Catholic Church service. It was important to keep up the usual routines, so as not to attract attention, 
so she was encouraged to undertake her usual task, only this time the uniformed Dan was on hand to help her too. When the celebrant noticed that she didn't stay and saw that there were extra police moving about at the barracks, he assumed, like the rest of the locals, that there were extra police reinforcements there put in place to guard against the Kelly gang, and that, of course, would mean extra domestic duties at the station for Mrs Devine. Back at the house, after the local information had been gathered, the gang drew sketches of the town and made their plans for Monday's activities. On one piece of paper, Joe had also written a riddle, though whether this was to amuse himself or the children is unknown. Question. Why are the Kellys the greatest matchmakers in the country? Answer. Because they brought loads of ladies to young husbands at Faithful Creek Station, Euroa. Oh, ha, 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 ho, 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 my sides are splitting with mirth. No, okay, it's a bit lame, but it indicates how amusing they found the whole thing. And along with newly penned Kelly Bush ballads and other folk stories already in the zeitgeist, it's clear that they were not simply the object of horror amongst the public anymore. They were developing quite the celebrity following. Sunday evening, Joe rode back to the Woolpack Inn for more flirting and amusement with the barmaid there. Ned stayed with Mrs Devine and delighted her with a reading of their multi-page manifesto, an expanded version of the Cameron letter, which he intended to have printed in town this time, for public distribution, seeing as the newspapers did not oblige with the Cameron letter. She listened with all the attention required to please Ned, but apparently could not recall its contents at all in the days that followed the hold-up. Jones describes what came to be known later as the Gerildery Letter as a blend of both Ned and Joe's content and style, and it covered more detail than the Cameron Letter. It was a significant development from that first effort, and it specifically articulated the state of war that now existed between Ned and the government. His anger extended out from the hated police force to the whole government and to the Crown itself, and he referred to the ongoing persecution of the Irish from the old country to the new. Ned's earlier threats were now magnified, and he further warned, quote, It will pay the government to give those people who are suffering innocence justice and liberty. If not, I will be compelled to show some colonial stratagem which will open the eyes of not only the Victorian police and its inhabitants, but also the whole British army. So that's pretty big talk. I recorded the Cameron letter at the end of an earlier episode, but it was a challenge to follow and understand, being so disjointed and rambling. I will also read a version of this Gerildery letter at the end of this episode, for those who are interested, but I will read from a 2007 version, intended as a resource for students, that was edited for clarity by Carol Wilkinson. She's clarified the grammar and punctuation, rearranged the events discussed into a chronological order, and she's removed the repetition and the unhelpful asides with, as she says, the aim of making Ned's words clearer without losing his wonderful turn of phrase, his unique style and wicked sense of humour. So I may abridge it even further for brevity, it is remarkable, though, and it may well be of interest to some of you. 
The Gerildery letter is available to read online and I will, as ever, put links in the show notes on the Australian Histories podcast website. Anyway, when Joe was back from his outing, the gang again settled in for the night at the police station and when Monday morning arrived, they put their plans into action. Joe began the day by dressing in the police uniform and taking two of their horses to the farrier to be re-shod and he told the blacksmith to put the job on the police accounts. A couple of the gang also did a casual reconnoitre of the telegraph office in town and the lines leading out, but they left them all intact at this stage and they returned to the police station. A little later, they began the hold-up. A uniformed Ned and Constable Richards headed into town. The other lads followed discreetly and the first to be bailed up was Charlie Cox, the publican of the Royal Mail Hotel and his staff. Hare reported Ned telling the landlord he wanted to secure some rooms in the hotel and that he intended robbing the bank, but he did not want to injure anyone. The Royal Mail Hotel was located in the same block as the Bank of New South Wales, their chosen target, and Steve and Dan were left in charge at the hotel to detain anyone else who happened to wander in, while Ned and Joe proceeded next door to the bank. As at Euroa, it's quite possible that other sympathisers may have made their way to Gerildery and to the Royal Mail Hotel prior to the planned hold-up, as itinerants and stockmen, etc., to swell the numbers and to ensure that the imprisoned group didn't get out of control. But if so, the evidence recorded doesn't seem quite as obvious as it appeared at Euroa. At the bank, Ned and Joe bailed up the accountant, Edwin Living, and the junior clerk, James Mackey and they went searching for the manager, John Tarleton. He was in the residence, having just arrived back from a ride out in the country, and he was at that time bathing to remove the dust from the ride. No doubt Ned's arrival in his bathroom was quite the surprise. The Callies gathered over £2,000 in cash, and again they took some other bank papers, deeds and insurance policies and such, most of which Ned destroyed, again in the hope, perhaps, of wiping the debts of some of the local farmers. Jones describes Ned as denouncing, quote, all financial institutions as slavers and poor man crushers, unquote. Lots of folks would have agreed with him on that. So we can now see how the Robin Hood persona was evoked. It's hard to dislike a man who wants to free you from the crushing debt imposed by greedy corporate entities. Gathering their booty, and one assumes allowing Tarleton to dress, they prepared to take the three men back to the hotel. In the meantime, Samuel Gill, the journalist and editor of the Gerildery Herald and Urana Gazette, hearing of the extra police in town, had gone to the police station to inquire about those troopers and to hear about their plans for the town's safety. Apparently he'd drawn attention on a number of occasions in his paper to the defencelessness of his township against threats such as bushrangers. But he appears to have been derided for his anxiety by the locals who thought they could easily deal with the likes of the Kellys, unlike their bumbling Victorian brothers. But having spoken to Mrs Devine in the absence of any police officers, he noted some anxiety in her communications and he suspected this time his fears might be a reality. The Kelly gang might actually be in town. So he decided he should first warn the bank manager. Gathering a couple of local businessmen on the way, Rankin and Harkin, 
They entered the bank and found the front room empty. Concerned now that a robbery might indeed be in progress, the three men decided to scarper, just as Ned and Joe dashed out to confront them. And Rankin and Harkin were captured at gunpoint. Gill, however, managed to escape. Some sources have him running and making his way six miles off to the township of Carrar before stopping. Hare, though, records that instead Gill hid for many hours in the creek bed nearby, only coming out when the gang had left town. Either way, his escape was now a security problem for the gang, so Joe quietly bailed up the telegraph operator, Henry Jefferson, and he made him dismantle the Morse code apparatus. Ned also made some townsfolk chop down at the telegraph poles, just to be sure. The men were then herded back to the hotel, where a large number of people were being held under guard. The escape of Gill was a blow for another reason, as his cooperation was required for Ned to get his new, improved letter printed. Ned was absolutely furious about Gill's escape when he learned who he was. He began ranting and raving. According to one witness, Ned became, quote, perfectly demonical. His face became distorted with the violence of his passion, and the veins in his forehead stood out in strong relief until he looked horribly ferocious, unquote. So this captive audience, this time, did not get the full charm treatment. They got to see the furious and foiled Ned, at least for a brief spell. In his anger, he threatened to shoot the two who had come into the bank with Gill, and Steve joined in, saying he would fire the bullets. The other captives pleaded for their lives. Jones does note one of the witnesses there assessing the situation as mostly bluff, though. This was more about inducing a healthy dose of fear in the rest of the captives to gain their respect and regain control of the crowd after the unplanned fiasco. I think, though, for many, this could have been a terrifying experience. After their failure in having the Cameron letter read in Parliament, or published in full by the newspapers for the general public to read, Ned and Joe had decided that the only way to get their full story out there was to publish it themselves. One of the reasons Gerildery was chosen as the hold-up site was the availability of a printing press in town. Now all that was for naught if the printer himself had scarpered. Ned, still desperate to get the letter printed, went to Gill's house, but he found he had not made his way back there. Instead, he pressed Mrs Gill to take the letter and to promise to have Gill publish it on his return, but she refused to make such an undertaking. The bank accountant, Living, who had come with Ned to find Gill, assured Ned that he would pass it on and get it published. Ned was hesitant, but in the end believed Living would do as he promised and did leave the letter with him. It's interesting that on some level Ned certainly was a man of his word and he expected others would be too. On several occasions he had trusted those who eventually brought him trouble or perhaps he was just so egotistical to think that no one would dare cross him and so his requests would be undertaken. Anyway, in this case, despite promising Ned he would pass the letter on to Gill for publication, Living instead kept the letter himself and he showed it off as a notorious item of interest, no doubt shining a minor celebrity light on himself. Living showed the letter to his friend John Hanlon, a local publican, and he made his own copy, 
So there were two copies in existence soon after the Gerildery hold-up. While Steve was on guard duty, he had taken the opportunity to relieve some of the crowd of various personal items. He certainly did not have the reserve that Ned had about not being a pest to the working man. And someone later complained about this to Ned. Ned ordered Steve to return the pilfered items belonging to individuals. A saddle, some watches, etc. The Callies did not burden the working class man. Their target was the banks, the establishment, the oppressors. So Ned's control of the situation and of his own men was well demonstrated and his protection of the poor man gained him some standing. Once again, he had his captive audience listen to his tale of persecution and forced confrontation and he tried to make them understand what drove him to that point. Flood, Fitzpatrick and being hunted by the plainclothes police at Stringybark Creek. Now it just remained to have his written story printed and he expected Living would see to that after they left. They had already released the drunk from the police lockup, but now they had the postmaster and his assistant join the two police in the cells instead, and Ned warned Mrs Devine not to unlock them until after 7.30pm, which she observed, not wanting her husband to chase after them. His departing speech at the hotel warned the 30 or so prisoners to wait three hours before reporting the gang. And then, like last time, after Dan and Steve put on another brief trick riding display, the gang rode off, separately, with the proceeds of the bank hall, Ned being the last to leave. So it was 9pm before a wire was received in Benella, advising of the Gerildery hold-up, and Hare arranged for police to make their way to the border crossings, on the lookout for the gang returning, but to no avail. The gang would have comfortably made their way back to their secure hideouts, keeping well out of sight of the police. The press, of course, described the Gerildery hold-up as another farce for the Victorian and now the New South Wales police. And this action raised Ned's profile to Commander-in-Chief. Their stature increased again. The New South Wales Premier, Henry Parks, who was to become well known as the father of Federation in Australia, was the Premier of New South Wales for most of the Kelly outbreak. He now offered to add another £4,000 to the reward. So by mid-February of 1879, the gang were worth £8,000, the largest reward ever offered. Calculations differ, but this amount is heading up to around the $2 million mark in modern Australian currency. Now Standish was finally forced to ask the previously rejected Queensland Police black trackers to assist, and the troop arrived under charge of Mr Stanhope O'Connor in March 1879. They immediately showed their worth by following old tracks which led to an abandoned hut near Greta. Kelson claims there were inscriptions on the door of the hut, Steve Hart and Dan Kelly camped here on 25 January 1879. One Ned Kelly also camped here. But the move south was hard on the Moorie trackers, and one, known as Sambo, became ill and died from a chest infection soon after their arrival. He was buried in an unmarked grave in Benella, far from his own country up north. In 1993, the Police Historical Society placed a simple tombstone for Sambo at the Benalla Cemetery. 
a small acknowledgement of his service after all those years. So the tracker skills were proven valuable and interestingly they were the one police group that Ned truly feared. But in the usual dysfunctional manner they were never really deployed usefully. Standish had never wanted them working with the Victoria Police and he had a very poor relationship with their supervisor O'Connor and basically ensured that they were kept well away from any real areas of interest instead being deployed to recover lost police horses and the like. It was a real waste of talent. Callie generally had nothing but disdain for most police, but he certainly respected and feared the Aboriginal trackers, who he thought may have been able to track him down where all others failed. So it seems quite amazing that Standish wasted such an opportunity to put pressure on the gang, he insisted that several white Victorian police officers work alongside the Queensland troop and he frequently directed where they could and could not go rather than letting them choose the most likely successful deployments for their skills. Sadlier, who could see what an asset they might be, was disappointed that Hare, quote, showed no interest in their work and failed altogether to appreciate their useful qualities, unquote. Hare himself apparently claimed Quote, I did not see anything particularly striking about them. Unquote. There was an element of the Victorian police management not wanting the Queensland police to show them up, a symptom of the colonial rivalry. But the most likely explanation for Standish and Hare's obstructive behaviour was probably racism. Later, when the Kelly siege was over at Glenrowan and all those involved were gathered, Standish refused to address the men until the black trackers were removed. One can only speculate the prospect of early capture of the Kellys had the Queensland troopers been encouraged to follow every fresh lead at that time. Ned recognised the potential danger of the trackers joining the hunt and understanding something of their abilities and the potential threat this might pose to the gang's movements, he became very concerned. They moved deeper into the bush and it is said that around this time the gang began to consider some form of flight from the area. Kelson writes that they actually contemplated leaving the region for good and that at least two of them travelled to Sydney to investigate a passage to South Africa. But if so, it was an unlikely outcome. The Kelly boys at least would be unable to leave their mother behind and it may all have simply been diverting speculation. Rumours of these considerations must have reached the police force, though, as Constable Fitzpatrick was sent to Sydney to watch for the Kellys coming north, seeing as he would easily be able to recognise them. But it soon became clear to Ned that the tracker's skills were being wasted by the Victorian command, and all that was required was for the gang to lay low for a while, and they could once again successfully operate in their home country with very little danger. Now I say lay low, but by that I mean they did not make any further spectacular public forays like Euroa or Gerildery for more than a year. But once they felt the Queensland trackers were not hot on their trail, they did resume ordinary visits to family and friends, and indeed they attended a number of public amusements, both near and far, such as a boxing match at Echuca, and later attending races at Moyu and they were certainly making plans throughout that quiet period for a major action which would occur mid-year in 1880. 
Throughout the many months following Geraldry, the hunt, as Hare referred to it, continued in its usual fashion. A substantial part of Hare's strategy was to send large search parties out for days on end, as well as following leads from his preferred sources, Joe's friend Aaron Sherritt being one of his favourites. Thinking he had Aaron Sherritt already in his pocket, Hare began asking more and more of Aaron and paid him generously for intelligence about the gang. He did not seem concerned that Aaron had got the location information on the Gerildery hold-up wrong. Anyone can make a mistake. And they apparently never discovered that Ned and Joe had sent, via Joe's brother Paddy, £100 from the Gerildery takings, intended to thank him for his help. Jones and others contend that while Aaron frequently worked with and supplied information to the police, it was always old news and vague, designed more to string them along than to actually cause any grief for the gang. The thought is that Aaron, certainly in the early months at least, was indeed playing at helping in order to protect Joe and the others. Even when he suggested they stake out the Burn residence in order to possibly catch Joe making a visit to his mother, Aaron ensured that Joe still hadn't approached the house that the police party, in their position, could not see. That stakeout came about because Aaron suggested to Hare, after the robbery, they would certainly bring some cash to Joe's mother on their return, and said that he could help Hare catch them there, if Joe's life could be spared. So it could have been that Aaron was there more for Joe's protection than to help the police capture him, Certainly those surveillances tied up Hare and a good number of the police while in place, thus leaving the rest of the locality relatively police-free should the gang wish to move about. But unless Aaron made his plan crystal clear to all the sympathisers and therefore risk his cover, his secret association with Hare became more well-known and he was of course treated with more and more suspicion by the friends and family of the Kellys, eventually becoming ostracised from that loyal group. So, soon after the Gerildery hold-up, in February, Aaron assisted Hare and his party to stake out Burns House in the Woolshed Valley. This stakeout became known as the Cave Party. The Woolshed area contains huge tumbles of granite boulders, and many of the resulting caves there have been used for shelter long before the Kellys and Burns arrived in the country. But Aaron knew the area well from his years exploring with Joe, and one series of caves was perched with a view right over the Burns homestead. The police would make camp in and around the caves there during the day, and in the evenings, guided by Aaron in the dark, would take up positions around the homestead below to watch throughout the night. And Aaron spent much of his time in camp there with the police, sleeping soundly, coatless on the ground in the frosty temperatures, much to the amazement of Hare. Kelson describes their arrival surrounding the homestead each evening, being greeted by the hissing geese. And of course, with this alarm becoming regular, Mrs Byrne became suspicious. In the following days, scouting around, she came across footprints. And then the telltale shavings from a bored policeman who'd been whiling away his time whittling wood. Then in mid-March, she was scouring the surrounding hills early one morning and noticed a reflection glinting off something above the valley. And she headed up the hill to take a look. 
The reflection had come from sunshine on a discarded sardine can, and nearby she discovered the police party, with Aaron there sleeping amongst them, recovering from their night watch. When the drowsy sentries noticed and detained her, she responded with, I'll get my son to shoot the whole bloody lot of you. At this time, Aaron was engaged to Joe's sister, so that discovery, of course, put an end to his relationship with her daughter. And Paddy did not pass on the £100 now, either. So Aaron's relationship with some of the gang's sympathisers began to seriously sour during March of 1879. Despite this news from his mother, Joe was still convinced, at this time, that Aaron was acting as a double agent in the gang's favour. But Mrs Byrne was never persuaded. Aaron's status with the locals, and eventually with the gang, began its descent. Similar surveillance parties watched other properties over time too, but they almost always knew when the police were about. There was no subtlety in their arrival. Many took delight in being able to lead the parties astray, or of foiling them altogether and disappearing into the bush. This surveillance did not seem to hinder the contact and provision of the gang to any great extent either, and it was a major frustration to the police command, as well as a source of ridicule for the public. Maggie is said to have taken great delight in uncovering and surprising the hidden police parties time and time again. Truly, did they not know the secret of removing their boots to become invisible? Their training really was wanting. So the hunt proceeded in this fashion for many months, with no results. The extent to which Sherritt was acting as a police agent is debatable, but it seems certain that, in the early days at least, he was deliberately feeding police exactly what the gang needed. At what point he became less careful, or too greedy to remain loyal to the gang, is unclear, and it became harder for anyone to discern exactly whose side Aaron was on. Hare most certainly had full trust in him, but Ward was less convinced. Who was getting the good information and who was being fed the bad? As the sympathisers began ostracising, did he drift further away from the gang and towards the police? To me, this is not something I can settle on. Some sources are convinced he turned police informer, others that he remained loyal to Joe at least and was badly misjudged. Meanwhile, after those repeated sympathiser arrests ceased in April, Standish formulated a second method for bringing the Kelly sympathisers to heel, with the help of the Minister of Lands. By May, lists of those due to appear before the land boards, in order to take up selector lands or increase their holdings, or to confirm their existing holdings, were circulated to the local police and officials. Any persons on those lists considered Kelly sympathisers were noted. Sadlier would report the police objection and their applications would be refused, their future denied. They were once again battling for land rights with the authorities. The author Jones considered it was these actions that tipped the Kelly outbreak into full-scale rebellion and led to the Glenrowan confrontation the following year. This tactic infuriated many and once again drew more local support to the Kellys. Rebellion seemed like the next step if their government was intent on keeping them disenfranchised. In June 1879, while Hare was riding out with one of his search parties, 
He was jumping his horse over a fence, and the landing proved a little rough, injuring his back. He was forced to return to Benalla in a buggy, and he let Standish know that he could no longer lead the police hunt. Standish had to relieve his favourite, and so he placed Nicholson back in charge. But he took the opportunity to reduce the strength of the force available to Nicholson, and to rein in some of the inordinate expenditure he'd allowed Hare, which to date had brought no useful results. Nicholson was not a happy camper. He recorded, with a hint of contempt, quote, when he, that is Hare, with the assistance of Standish, spent eight months in pursuit of the Kellys with the largest body of police that ever was in the district, and with the artillery forces at his command to watch the townships so that he had the full benefit of the police, and when he spent more money per month than was spent on the pursuit at any other time, and with all these advantages, when I relieved him in July 1879, he did not know if the Kellys were in Victoria." Unquote. Nicholson gave up on the fruitless surveillance parties and instead recruited more local spies. As Jones put it, Nicholson refrained from sending police galloping off at every report. They would not draw him out, he would draw them out. Nicholson also hoped that the decreased police activity might lull Ned into a false sense of security and prompt some rash act giving them the opportunity to nab him. But he and the rest of the authorities had failed to understand that the situation had changed. After this last horrific year of harassment and oppression, there was now a greater mood for rebellious action in the northeast, and that sentiment reached much further than four Kelly gang members. There was a ferment that could lead to a real outbreak of hostility and insurrection across the region. Next episode, we'll talk about where this sentiment led, the plans that the community made, and the role that the gang were to play out in Glenrowan, mid-year of 1880. Throughout this period, stories about the Kelly Gang consumed the Victorian press and public, and was of interest to a good deal of further afield too. Not just New South Wales, but right across Australia, with reports and stories even being published in Europe and the Americas. All talk was of the astonishing Kellys, the police inability to capture them, the romance and growing myths associated. Ballads were written. One popular one, called Ballad of Kelly's Gang, was supposedly penned by Joe himself and was set to a well-known Irish tune, The Wearing of the Green. It included the following verse. Sure, Paddy dear, and did you hear the news that's going round? On the head of bold Ned Kelly they have placed two thousand pounds. For his brother Dan, Joe Burns, Steve Hart, a similar sum they'll give. But if they doubled that amount, the Kelly gang would live. And a tale called The Book of Kelly, spelt K-E-L-I, where the Standish character, called Dish Stand, and his whole force were mercilessly ridiculed was published as a serial, along with several other similar satirical publications. When the actual Standish returned to Melbourne and met with Premier Berry, just recently returned from England himself, they may have had quite the uncomfortable catch-up. 
No doubt both were aware that even the Times in Britain had drawn attention to the Victorian government's inability to, quote, bring a pack of Irish scoundrels to heel, unquote. And just to note from that report, there was clearly something to Kelly's complaint that the old-class prejudices were alive and well in Victoria, with these Australian-born lads being called Irish scoundrels, code for them being inevitably and incorrigibly bad. Being Irish Catholics might have been their biggest crime. So we should wrap up the Gerildery episode here. Next time we'll explore the lead-up to the Kellys in Glenrowan. We'll talk about their plans for a direct confrontation with police and the government. And finally, we're going to get to discuss that fabulous Kelly armour. I can't wait. The references used and a few related images are posted at australianhistoriespodcast.com.au And this episode, I've included a number of links to various Kelly ballads that you can find on the net too, if that appeals. After Glen Rowan, the final episodes will look at Ned's court case and the wash-up from the Kelly outbreak for the people of Victoria. It might be interesting to see where you end up placing Ned on the scale of villain or hero at the end of the saga too. When the Kelly saga's complete, the Australian Histories podcast might look at a few of the shorter and more quirky tales from our past. Anyway, that's just a heads up for post-Kelly story ideas. For those of you interested, I will attach a reading of Carol Wilkinson's edited version of the Gerildery letter on the end of this episode, so keep listening if you want to hear that. Otherwise, I'll catch you in two weeks for the fabled Last Stand at Glenrowan. Have a safe and happy fortnight. Cheers, everyone. Okay, so if you're still listening, it's probable that you have an interest in hearing the Gerildery letter, and I will read the version edited by Carol Wilkinson and illustrated by Dean Jones, published in 2007 by Black Dog Books. As I noted earlier, this edit has had a lot of the grammar and punctuation tidied up. Carol has rearranged some of the material into chronological order so it makes much more sense and she has removed some of the completely unrelated and peripheral material but the core of Joe and Ned's writing remains. I am going to abridge this reading a little further just for brevity. I am reading from a book here so you may occasionally hear a page turn. (laughs) My apologies for that also. Okay here we go with the Gerildery letter. Dear Sir, I wish to acquaint you with some occurrences of the present, past and future. He moves on to talking about when he borrowed the horse that he thought belonged to Wild Wright, but which turned out to be stolen by Wild Wright from the Mansfield postmaster. He talks about his arrest at that time and the fact that Constable Hall tried to shoot him several times during the attempted arrest, though he was unarmed himself. He was charged with receiving a stolen horse and he got three years jail, much of it spent in Pentridge. So I'll start reading now the Gerildery letter, taking up the story just after his release from jail. After I left Pentridge, 
I worked at the sawmills, where I became an overseer. Then, up on the King River, I ran in a wild bull, which I then gave to a farmer. I was blamed for stealing that bull. Not long afterwards, I heard I was blamed for stealing a mob of calves, which I knew nothing about. I began to think they wanted me to give them something to talk about. Therefore, I started wholesale and retail horse and cattle dealing. After I sold the horses, I left the colony of Victoria, and there was a warrant out for my arrest. When the police could not snare me, they went after my brother Dan. On the 15th April, Constable Fitzpatrick went to Eleven Mile Creek to arrest him for stealing Whitty's horses. He said he had a warrant, but when asked to produce it, he couldn't. My mother said the trooper had no business on her premises without some authority. Fitzpatrick pulled out his revolver and threatened to blow her brains out if she interfered. She said it was a good job Ned was not there, or he would ram the revolver down his throat. Dan said, Look, Ned is coming now. The trooper swung around, and Dan took his revolver. Fitzpatrick left and invented some scheme to say that I shot him, which any man could see was false. Would I have fired in a house full of women and children, while I had a pair of arms with a bunch of five on the end of them? Fitzpatrick knew the weight of one of the pair only too well, as it ran against him once in Benalla, and he is very subject to fainting. Next day, my mother was arrested. The police got great credit and praise in the papers for arresting the mother of twelve children, one an infant at her breast, along with two quiet, hard-working men, Williamson and Skillion, who would not know the difference between a revolver and a saucepan handle. They were convicted on the evidence of the meanest article that the sun ever shone on. I heard a trooper say he never knew Fitzpatrick to be one night sober. Fitzpatrick looks rather genteel, more fit to be a starcher or a laundress than a policeman, but to a keen observer the deceit and the cowardice is plain to be seen on his puny cabbage-hearted face. It will pay the government to give justice and liberty to those innocent people who are suffering, if not, I will open the eyes of not only the Victoria Police, but also the whole British Army. Fitzpatrick will be the cause of greater slaughter to the Union Jack than St. Patrick was to the Snakes of Ireland. I was over 400 miles from Greta when I heard I was outlawed. I knew I would get no justice if I gave myself up. I inquired after my brother Dan and found him up on Bullock Creek. He told me the police had been bragging that they would shoot me first and then cry surrender. While searching my mother's house, they had upset the milk dishes, broken tins of eggs, emptied flour onto the ground, they shoved the girls in front of them into the rooms, so if anyone was there they would shoot the girls first. But they knew well I was not there, or I would have scattered their blood and brains like rain. I would have manured the eleven mile with their bloated carcasses. Yet remember, there is not one drop of murderous blood in my veins. The police have been telling my sisters they will blow me into small pieces. They threaten to shoot the girls and the children. The greatest ruffians and murderers, no matter how desperate, would not be guilty of such cowardly actions. This sort of cruelty and disgraceful conduct made my blood boil. I don't think there is a man born who would have the patience to suffer it. Yet... In every newspaper, I am called the blackest and coldest-blooded murderer ever. But if I hear any more of it, I will show them something different to shooting three troopers in self-defence and robbing a bank. They will see wholesale and retail slaughter. The police were not satisfied with frightening my sisters day and night and lagging my mother and those innocent men. 
they followed me and my brother into the wilds where Dan had been quietly digging for gold, neither molesting or interfering with anyone. On the 25th of October, I came across two sets of police tracks. I told my brother and his two mates, and we followed the tracks and found the police camp about a mile away. We saw they were carrying long firearms. Our doom was sealed if we could not beat them. They would shoot us down like dogs, as we only had two guns. We thought it best to bail them up and take their firearms and ammunition. We got as close as we could to the camp and we saw two men. We could have shot them without speaking, but, not wishing to take their lives, we waited. I called on them to throw up their hands. McIntyre obeyed, but Lonigan ran six or seven yards to a pile of logs. He raised his head to take aim, and I shot him that instant, or he would have shot me. He staggered some distance with his hands raised and then fell. He surrendered, but too late. I took their guns and I asked McIntyre where his mates were. He said he did not expect them till night and asked if I was going to shoot them. I told him I would shoot no man who gave up his arms and agreed to leave the police force. He said they only came to apprehend me. Since they carried Spencer rifles and so much ammunition, it looked to me as if they meant to riddle me. I said I did not blame them for doing honest duty, but I could not suffer them blowing me to pieces on my own native land. I soon heard Kennedy and Scanlon coming up the creek. McIntyre told them to give up their arms. When I called on them to throw up their hands, Kennedy reached for his revolver, jumping off his horse and got behind a tree. Scanlon slewed the horse around to gallop away, but the horse would not go in, and quick as thought, he fired at me without unslinging his rifle. He was about to fire again, so I had to shoot him, and he fell off his horse. McIntyre jumped on Kennedy's horse, and I let him go, as I did not like to shoot him after he had surrendered. Kennedy kept firing. He ran and I followed. I did not know he had dropped his revolver. I shot him as he slewed around to surrender. Were they my own brothers, I could not have been more sorry for them. This cannot be called willful murder, for I was compelled to shoot them or let them shoot me. But I am reckoned a horrible brute because I am not cowardly enough to lie down for them. Certainly their wives and children are to be pitied. But those men came with the intention of scattering pieces of me and my brother all over the bush. Are my brothers and sisters and my mother not to be pitied as well? They had no alternative but to put up with the brutal and cowardly conduct of a parcel of big, ugly, fat-necked, wombat-headed, pig-bellied, magpie-legged, narrow-hipped, splay-footed sons of Irish bailiffs or English landlords, better known as officers of justice or Victorian police. A policeman is a traitor to his country, ancestors and religion. What would people say if they saw a big strapping lump of Irishman shepherding sheep for 15 bob a week? They would say he ought to be ashamed of himself, but he would be a king to an Irish policeman who deserted the shamrock to serve under the flag a nation that destroyed, massacred and murdered his forefathers, or transported them to Van Diemen's land to pine their young lives away in starvation and misery. The Queen must surely be proud of such heroic men as police. It takes eight. Anyone who takes blood money from the police, I will outlaw. They will be declared unfit for human burial. Their property will be confiscated. They and all belonging to them will be exterminated off the face of the earth. Being pegged on an ant bed with their bellies opened, their fat taken out, rendered and poured down their throat boiling hot will be nothing to the pleasure I will give any person assisting police. I do not call McIntyre a coward, for I reckon he is as game a man as wears the jacket. He had the presence of mind to know it is only foolhardiness to disobey an outlaw. It was cowardice that made Lonigan and the others stand and fight. Any policeman or other man who doesn't throw up his hands directly, as I call on them, knows the consequences. 
a speedy dispatch to kingdom come. I give fair warning to all those who have reason to fear me, to sell up and give ten pound out of every hundred towards the widow and orphan fund, and do not attempt to reside in Victoria. Neglect this, and the consequences shall be worse than the rust in the wheat in Victoria, or a dry season to the grasshoppers in New South Wales. I do not wish to give the order full force without giving timely warning. But I am a widow's son outlawed, and my orders must be obeyed. <laughs>